You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, two guests this week, two excellent conversations. First up, Alan Shipnuck, a longtime golf writer who is a partner and executive editor at the golf media company, The Fire Pit Collective, probably the best-selling book on Phil Mickelson. And we get into what it is like to cover the Masters, um, how a uh, how a writer goes about uh, doing that, because it is not an easy event to cover. He was just at the Masters, so we talk about the Masters final round, um, average of 12.058 million, which was the most-watched golf telecast in five years kicking around as to why we think that happened we talk about live and the pga tour and what uh what alan thinks of live's media deal uh if you're into golf we get a little bit into the new league the tgl which uh tiger woods is part of uh uh two hours 18 hole matches on a virtual course uh uh taking place on a primetime monday night and then we finish with um alan uh just giving us uh, some insight into uh, how he and Matt Janella formed their company and uh, and the challenges of being a um, not just a writer anymore, but an entrepreneur in the space. He is followed by Howard Beck, the longtime and excellent NBA writer. You can find his work now at uh, GQ.com. And we get into uh, Howard's recent piece, Why NBA MVP Voter Fatigue is Mostly a Myth, and uh, a conversation on what it's like to be an NBA awards voter, uh, whether writers should vote, and um, what... Uh, what we think of the play-in tournament and and why it's been very good for the NBA. So Alan Shipnuck to start, Howard back to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Alan Shipnuck is a longtime writer specializing in golf. After a quarter century at Sports Illustrated, where we worked together, and Golf Magazine, he's now a partner and executive editor at the golf media company, The Fire Pit Collective, where you can find all his writing, his podcasts, and his video storytelling. Well, some of you may have read his best-selling book on Phil Mickelson, titled That is Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. And, uh, I mean, Alan Shipnuck is really mostly known for the fact that uh, once upon a time I fact-checked, I think it was a UCLA, pre- uh, UCLA football preview of his. It was my earliest reporting assignments, and reporters at Sports Illustrated we're glorified fact checkers. And that is where I first encountered Alan Shipnuck. Alan, welcome back. 
Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast, and then welcome back from the Masters, where, uh, as you just told me, you landed in California. Uh, it was a late night for you, right? It was, yeah. It's not easy to get from Little Augusta, Georgia, to my hometown here in Carmel, California. It's it's an odyssey, but I'm I'm happy to be home. It was, and thanks for the hospitality. I'm happy to be doing this podcast as well. But it was it was a it was a very eventful masters week in the end you know john rom kind of strolled to victory and it wasn't it wasn't that exciting but the macro stories just won't quit there, there's so much swirling around this tournament and professional golf as a whole so uh it was it was definitely a a unforgettable week and i think an important one in, in sort of the the larger golf ecosystem we'll get into that i don't do a lot of golf on this podcast but but i really did want to talk about this because i um i i found this master's really interesting just given uh, what the viewership turned out to be, obviously uh, Liv's involvement. But before we start any of that, for my listeners who are fans of the master's but will never get the opportunity to cover it, like how challenging is this event to cover for you as a reporter? Yeah, you, you have to separate the spectator experience from from those of us who are there to actually work. It's the greatest event in in sports if you're just a fan. I mean, it, it hums along with such in, incredible precision and efficiency, everything about it. And of course, you know, you could eat and drink all day long for 20 bucks. And the the way they, there's a million bathrooms that, you know, have like hardwood floors and and slate walls and um, the grandstands are, are everywhere. You, you can all, no matter what, just a general admission ticket, you always have, feel like you're in the front row. And so... As as a, and the parking is free. You know, you go to you go to football basketball game to charge you sixty bucks to park or whatever. You know, every, everything is the entire experience is built around the fans, and they do a spectacular job. For those of us who are there to to work, it sucks. It's the worst week of the year. I mean, everybody knows that Augusta National and the Green Jackets they're like th- these overbearing, uptight, paranoid um, father figures, and. Every year they take something away from the reporters. It makes it harder to do our job. They built this Taj Mahal press room, and it, it looks great when they when they um, you know they do little video tours and the members love to bring their family around and, and show people and, and they it, to me it's like being at the zoo. It's like oh yeah, look at those look at those sports writers there in their their natural habitat and it's like um, everyone gawks it. it. It's a weird it's a weird energy, but. You know, information is the coin of the realm in this business, and everyone's watching. You can w- literally watch every shot now at the Masters on 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 their website and their app. And so, I have no value telling people what happened at the Masters. They already know. You know, my my role is to bring analysis and insight and take take readers and places they can't go otherwise. And um, you know, Augusta National closed the locker room during COVID, which I guess was defensible, but now they refuse to open it back up, and so. It's, they want everything to get funneled to this one flash area where, you know, I don't ask questions in press conferences and at flash areas. Cause then if someone says something amazing, the whole world has it and it gets aggregated and beamed around the world. So I want to do my own reporting. Um, I used to do it in the player parking lot. We're not allowed to go there anymore. I used to stay on the front porch. You could, you could get a lot of folks there. They've, they've closed that to reporters. The back veranda is a fertile spot. I got of the second story where a lot of people, the, a lot of the players gather. I got booted out of there on Sunday. It's, um, you know, I think the Masters is so big, and and the 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 presentation on TV and on their app, which might be the best in sports, they feel like that's all that matters. And and the reporters there are are an inconvenience and maybe an, an additive, but there's certainly 
don't care about the storytelling. I mean, Augusta National will not exist without Grantland Rice. You know, he was an early member and a huge booster who sold the dream of Augusta National to all the financiers and all the all the investors who came in. And with you know Herbert Warren Wind coined the term Amen Corner, Dan Jenkins, you know, the Masters and Start to the Back Nine on Sunday, like the mythology of the Masters owes a lot to the typing class. And um it's kind of we've been marginalized to the point that it's it's really frustrating. I mean, I still enjoy being there. It, the energy is amazing. That obviously the course is beautiful. That it, it usually produces uh, something memorable and impactful as far as a winner and, and a bunch of storylines. But it's a bitch trying to uh, actually do the job. One more thing on that. Uh, this is a really interesting insight. Um, when you make a decision on a daily basis, uh, you can't be you can't cover every golfer, obviously, um, but you could watch every golfer from the press seat. Do you make a decision to stick mostly in the media room or do you decide to, I'm going to follow a final grouping or, or a certain pair and, and travel with them? It's a combination of both and it depends on the day and it depends what's happening. I mean, I like to be out on the course as much as possible, uh, but again, you know, there's even reporters are not allowed to have cell phones at Augusta national. So you can't be in touch with your colleagues, your editors, you can't be tweeting and, you know, fans have such an insatiable desire to, to, to get tweets during the big events. You can't coordinate if, if, if you have a change of heart, like you're going to go right about Tiger and then he goes bogey, bogey, bogey. You're going to switch to Rory. I have to tell my colleagues, you know, there's just no way to do that. And um, so that's also one of the challenges. Um, I like to be out on the golf course that not only because it's, it's fun and you might, you might catch a few stolen moments, but that's where you can actually do reporting because you find the wives, the girlfriends, hopefully not of the same player. You find the agents, the college buddies, the uh, the swing coaches, and they're just outside walking around, and so you can really do some some good reporting that way. I mean, it's 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 not easy. It's a hike, and there's a lot of people out there. But if you've gone enough masters, you kind of know the flow and the the families. They they all have their hangouts, and they they know they know the shortcuts too. So you can usually bird dog people quite effectively. Um, and then you know the, there's the famous tree behind the the clubhouse, this giant oak tree where people gather. And it's not fans; you need a special badge. Fans can't get there, but reporters can. And that's really everyone who's anyone in the world of golf hangs out under the tree during Masters Week. Whether it's um, the heads of the the royal and ancient, you know, the rule makers, or it's um, it, it's big shot uh, agents and deal makers, it's. Uh, the top guys of the USGA who were there as honorary guests. Uh, it's the past champions. People, even even other athletes from other sports who come in for corporate things or just as um, just just to experience it. So you can hang out on the tree and get a lot of interviews done there as well. Um, and you have a view of the first tee, and you can kind of and the 18th green. You can kind of feel like you're 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 watching golf even while you're talking to people. So um, it's really a mix of you know again trying to trying to get information that nobody else has, but. Uh, then I'll run back to the press room and you, 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 like every other fan, you can just go go into the, the website and, and watch every shot and see what you missed. So, holy cow, you know, feel play the back nine 31, you know, I'm going to watch every shot of that. And it's cool because you can catch up in about three minutes. So that technology has, has left us not chained to our desks in a way that in, in the past, you know, I, I mean, I remember that when going out to watch golf. And again, if you're at another event, you can be watching on your phone and kind of feel like you're still paying attention. You're, you're with one group, but you have a sense of what's happening. But the masters, you can do that. So you'd run, you'd you go out for two or three hours and follow a group on the front nine, and you'd miss so much golf. And it's like, hey, how did uh, 
how did Rory bogey eight? You know, oh, what, what, what happened to tiger number seven? Like you're just trying to piece it all together. Cause you'd missed it. And there's no way to get it back. I mean, um, you know, I've read rental houses and I don't really have access to a DVR and stuff like that. So it's, it's a complex dance of, of trying to watch golf, trying to do your reporting, trying to find time to type, trying to find time to tweet. And it's very complex that week, especially because of all the restrictions. Yeah, interesting. Um, the, so uh, a couple hours before we um, are taping this, the Masters final round uh, viewership comes out. They averaged uh, 12.058 million viewers. That's the most watched um, final round in five years, most watched golf telecast in five years, um, up obviously over 2022, uh, up over 21, and, you know, with COVID and stuff like that, that sort of makes sense. I think if you... Um, well, no, but also 19, when, when Tiger effing Woods came back from the dead to win the match. Exactly. The fact that it outstripped that. that one is mind-boggling. It's a great number at CBS and the Masters, and Augusta has to be really happy. So... I ask you this, you know, the athletic makes, uh, not makes, I shouldn't say it like that. Athletic asks, you know, for like our insight when it comes to some of these viewership stories, like, you know, just write a quick paragraph as to why you think this was. So my thought process on this is that, well, it's probably all of these factors. It's Easter Sunday. Uh, so that's an interesting day for people to sort of sit there and watch. You had the third round and the fourth round. And so I think you had like this smorgasbord of golf that I think people really, really were into it. You have, um, at the time, the start of the final round, you had a very tight leaderboard, at least at the top with the Brooks Kepka and John Rahm. And finally, and this is where I want to sort of get you in on this, you have LIV golfers, you have live golfers as well as PGA golfers. Do you have a sense or how would you sort of weight what you might think the factors were that led to this uh, really good final round? Which we saw, Alan, as you know, a guy win by four. It's not like he was competing the last 25 minutes of this tournament against somebody. I mean, he ran away with it. So what are the factors that got us here, you think? Yeah, there's, there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, I, I think that actually Easter Sunday is considered an impediment to good ratings. Um, if, you, if you look historically, Easter has suppressed the Masters ratings. So it, it, the, you would think, oh, maybe people are at home um, you know, bored, but in fact, a lot of them are at church or they're, they're doing Easter egg hunts and whatever. And I think- A lot, a lot of secular people out there, Alan. Don't, don't forget about the secular. Oh, for sure. But um, <laughs> I do think historically Easter has been considered a bad luck for, for the Masters telecast. So it even makes the numbers more impressive. But um, yeah, shout out to the seculars. But um, <laughs> so the, uh, there was a lot. I mean, it starts on Saturday, really. Masters Saturday was a complete dud because because of the weather problems um they made it an incredible decision not to put the leaders on as a featured pairing on on the streaming coverage so you could literally not watch the leaders play golf on some of the holes if you were clever enough like they had a um, a four five six camera you could watch those holes but you'd have to know that that exists so you could watch them play those holes otherwise yeah the, the guys leading the tournament were just in this in this blackout and then right as, as the coverage window was going to begin was when the, the play got called for the day. So I think it was a pent up demand. And as you said, they, they finished the third round Sunday morning and, and uh, it really was sunrise to sunset TV viewing if you're into that sort of thing. So I, I think, I think that it, it fed the excitement because it was, it was just, it was a mega Sunday, but you know, John Rahm is an incredible golfer. There's no doubt he's number one in the world, but I don't think he's a crossover star. I, I don't think he's a galvanizing figure. Brooks has some of that for sure. Um, but again, there's no um, 
there was no tiger there was no rory which makes the, the numbers even more impressive and um i think it's just the energy around the game of golf right now uh you know we know anecdotally there's been this massive spike in participation through covid and so you have all these new golfers who uh, maybe don't they're not going to watch week in week out but they kind of pick up on the the hype of the masters they tuned in uh i think this the the live versus pj tour battle has you know it's been on the front page of it's been it's been the business section it's it's been on talk radio and it was an inescapable storyline you know you had these guys coming together for the first time in a meaningful tournament really since the the open championship in july at st andrews and so uh, and then when the brooks was you know running away with the tournament like that 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 narrative held i mean that that fed the intrigue and and then you know rom and brooks have this alpha energy and so it was fun to watch them go at it and all of a sudden I mean, the, the two most exciting golfers in the world are Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth. They're not the best, but they're the most exciting. And they started racing up the leaderboard. And even though it's even like, you know, the math was against them, they're never going to catch Rom, but they added a huge amount of energy to um, the latter half of the telecast. And because the the greens were soft from the rain, the players could attack more. So there was some incredible shot making and, um, you know, some really likable characters like uh, Sahith Thigala, you know, he went crazy out there. And um, and we should you know he was a guy who no one had ever heard of except for the hardcore fans, and then he was his feature on the Netflix show. And there's definitely been a Netflix bump. You know, I don't know how much you watched a full swing, but yeah, uh, it, it yeah it had great numbers. And a guy like Sahith, you know, I saw his dad out there like he was being actually not at the Masters because people knew at the Masters, but at the Phoenix Open, his dad was signing autographs and taking selfies. And this is you know a completely anonymous dude until that show came out. And so you can imagine what that what it did for the players. And so, um, you know, I think all the all those factors combined, it wasn't one thing that drove the numbers. I think it was a combination of a bunch. And um, and even because because of the rain, it, you know, the competition. And also because of Patrick Cantlay is the slowest player that in on God's green earth. It's like the human rain delay. Like they didn't finish until 45 minutes later than it ordinarily would have. And so they got even deeper into the evening. And so even if you were say at church and doing an Easter egg hunt and having a big dinner, Oh my God, the masters are still on. Let's watch the last four holes, you know? So, um, the later you go into, into primetime, obviously that's advantageous. So there was, there was a lot of different factors and, uh, it just combined to to be kind of a blockbuster buster week. The um, you know, on this podcast, we have talked um a lot about um live a, in terms of when I've had like other media reporters on, and you know, we have our thoughts on it, but we we sort of look at it obviously through the prism of um the the media rights that they've ultimately landed. What you think of like CW versus obviously. Uh, CBS and NBC, et cetera. Um, and so I, I don't need to sort of uh, bore my listeners again with, with my take on Liv. Um, you know, they got a deal. In my opinion, it's not a very good deal, uh, but they'll, they'll try to push the numbers as best they can. And it seems like a very clear long-term play. But you, you know, you've written about this a lot. Um, you've talked to the people who are in the sport um, what do you make from your perspective of Liv's media deal? And maybe more interestingly, like their long-term future as a potential media play, because um, at a certain point they have to get better carriage or 
it's not going to work. That's just the history of, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's just the history of sports in the United States. Like uh, eventually you have to get to a bigger place where you could be distributed to more people. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when it, when it was on YouTube last year, only basically streaming on YouTube that, that was held against live. Like, Oh, they can't even get on TV. Then they landed TV deal. And it was like, Oh, YouTube was so much easier. It was, it was the biggest platform in the world. You know, like whatever they do, it gets held against them. Um, oh, they're on TV, but it's only the CW. So like they, you know, live can never win in these things. Um, clearly, you know, it's not one, it's not a, it's not one of the big three or four networks. Um, it sounds like they want to get in. In I mean, I'm talking to the live folks. They they tell me that the CW is going to start becoming a, a player in live sports. And they might, they, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's you know there's rumors floating around with the Pac-12, whether you believe it or not. And so yeah, they may they may, they may get more involved with with sports. Yeah, and that would obviously help live if, if the whole network becomes committed to that and they're they're first ones in the door. Um, you know, obviously they would have loved to to land a Fox or a CBS. It just wasn't available. They had to take what they, they could get. Um, I, so if, if you're on golf Twitter on Saturday or Sunday, and this has been happening for a decade and it's almost obnoxious, I started muting it, but everyone bitches about the TV coverage because golf TV coverage has been so bad historically. And it's, it's so much talk. It's so little action. When you watch live, it is it is what every golf fan is begged for, which is just nonstop action. And I was talking to Keith Hirschland, who uh, is the director of the whole show. He said they average about 150 shots um, per hour, and on and on the NBC and CBS telecasts, it's between 50 and 60. So they have made a concerted effort. Just it's and he hates tappins. He has a rule against tappins. So a, a lot of the other. A lot of the the other networks show a guy, you know, a leader making a two foot putt. It's only interesting if he misses it, right? So they don't show tappins either. I mean, it's it's like shot, 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 shot. And so I'm not a huge consumer. I mean, I've been at most of the live events in person. It's on in the press room, and I don't I don't have the sound on. I'm like, damn, they're showing a lot of golf. <laughs> it's cool. Um, and I miss some of the cheesy commentary and some of the the bells and whistles because I'm just I'm not that locked in on it. And when I'm when I'm at home, I generally just check the scores and highlights that I, I haven't. That's that's for most golf. You know, I don't want to spend that much time watching. I'll DVR it and zoom through it. But so, um, in some ways, the live coverage is, is amazing. Now, as they get more corporate sponsorship and more more, uh, you know, on the streaming side of it, there'll be, there'll be more interruptions. But right now, it's like it's a lot of golf, which is what all people have ever wanted. So. Um, I guess maybe I see I'm not an optimist, but I can see that they're doing some things right. Um, but I agree that the CW is um, it's an easy punchline and they don't seem overly committed to um, to live at this juncture. From what I understand, it's the the first two years are kind of a rev share. And then year three, it'll be a more traditional model where the CW will pay live based on how the first two years go. So if, if, and you know, if, if Brooks had won, that would have changed the conversation because the crown jewel of golf is the open at St. Andrews. They have the guy who won that cam Smith. The other most important status symbol in the game is the green jacket. If they had Brooks, like at that point, it gets really hard to dismiss and there would have been a lot more energy and, and a lot more eyeballs around it, I believe. So, uh, that was a near miss, but, um, clearly, you know the, the talking point that these guys are not ready to compete that they've gotten soft and they they've sold out i mean 
to have three players in the top six uh that was that was a great showing for live golf and it, it makes the ensuing majors very intriguing and if if some live guys can win one or two of those that obviously is a huge boost to the cw and that whole platform so we don't know yet how it's going to play out i mean i think i think it was the best they could do and they're they're trying to make the best of it, it i'd give the whole live tv thing about a c or a c plus so far but uh there's definitely room to grow and if, if cw is committed um it could be it could become you know important part of their sports programming so uh we'll see uh, it, it hasn't it's been an okay start is what would be my assessment of the whole relationship this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from progressive it works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. A couple more here. You, um, I saw that you wrote that uh, you felt all along there would be a reckoning at the end of this summer for Tiger Woods. This is quoting you. Last year, he was just coming back and building strength, so scores didn't really matter. But if Woods continues to be a non-factor, will he keep soldering through these majors in a ceremonial role? Um, have you contemplated, at least in terms of uh, interest perspective, uh, television perspective, what a post-Tiger Woods universe would look like? Yeah, I mean, it's it's off and on. It, since 2013, the tours had glimpses of it. I mean, really from because of all of Tiger's injuries and surgeries. I mean, from 2014 to 17, he was basically a non-factor in golf. I mean, he he missed a bunch of majors. The ones he showed up to, he missed the cut at. Um, and so, and it's not probably a coincidence. That was when the tour minted a bunch of new stars in, in George Spieth and Justin Thomas and Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson. And, you know, there was a little more room to breathe and promote. And so I, I think golf is survivable without without Tiger at this point. He's just he's he adds a lot of value, but no one's counting on him for anything. Um, I mean, golf has always been a niche sport; it's always been a boutique sport. Tiger took it into the mainstream, but there was always going to be a correction. It just it's still a niche sport, and so um, the the tour is investing so much in uh, money and promotion that maybe it'll be somewhere between you know uh, somewhere in that continuum um it won't go it won't revert all the way back to the boring days of tom kite and tom layman and, and all these really super anodyne players that nobody cared about there's there's a, it, the sport's gotten younger it's gotten more exciting more athletic uh the golfers have embraced social media in a huge way uh there's you know there's these things like like the netflix show uh, there was that big tiger documentary on on HBO, Amazon's making a documentary of my Phil book. Like there's, there's still compelling figures. And I think that, that the sports in, in a pretty good place and Tiger's always going to be involved. You know, he's going to be a Ryder cup captain and a president's cup captain. And, you know, his son, Charlie, who has an absolutely gorgeous golf swing and is probably one of the 10 most famous golfers on the planet already, even though he's 17. Uh, if, if he starts getting exemptions into tournaments you know tiger's going to play next to him just like lebron and brawny and that that could keep tiger going and keep him keep him in the limelight so i think tiger's always going to be a factor one way or the other and you know, of course he hosts his own tournament in la and other things like that but 
I think it'd be folly to think that there's ever going to be a ratings bump from Tiger as a competitor. If, if he can, if he can ever wake up four days in a row with his back and his leg and his neck and his Achilles feeling good, and he could make a little run at a, at a masters or, you know, a U.S. open or whatever it might be, then people will lose their mind and the ratings will be monstrous, but you can, you can't bank on that anymore. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have thoughts about the new, that TGL league, which, uh, uh, primetime matches on Monday. It seems like uh, every single day they're adding another celebrity investor. If nothing else, their ability to get um, press attention is pretty good so far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just the name Tech Infused Golf. Like that's become a joke. How you feel today? Well, I'm I'm Tech Infused, man. Like I'm I'm I really am looking at my phone too much. Like I the whole thing to me sounds kind of cheesy, um, but. If I guess I'm supposed to be excited because it's all about bringing golf to a different audience, and uh, it's it's been a sea change in the sport. I, I was talking to the president of the PGA of America, and he was saying it's the first time there's ever been more golfers come to golf through non green grass avenues. That's Top Golf, Five Iron Golf, Mini Golf. Um, you know, just ways to get people excited about the game, and this is just an extension of that. And it's it's a really important trend for the for the industry and, and the future of the sport. So I don't want to diminish the fact that like if if people think it's cool, then that's great. I, personally, I don't have a lot of interest in it. But um, again, th- now this is driven somewhat by Tiger because we know he can't walk a golf course effectively, and he has a finite number of swings in his fused spine. So this is just a chance to get Tiger on TV. Low, it's low impact, potentially fun, but. You know the thing about this is all this is all really about celebrity. They're all going to be mic'd up. It's going to be very intimate. All these guys are boring. I mean, they're just. It's not the NBA. There's just monster personalities and and so much charisma. I mean, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, John Rom, nice human beings, but boring as hell. And so, I don't. I'm not sure what. I think the expectations have to be, <laughs> you know, appropriate. It, it, could it be fun? And is it a nice, nice way to kill a Monday when there's nothing else on TV? Sure. But I don't think it's it's going to revolutionize golf on TV or, or really have a huge impact on the sport. I mean, honestly, a lot of what this is, it's it's a way to funnel more money to the top players to combat live golf. And the, the tour, you know, the tour, this is TGL is a breakaway league that um, the tour has actually got behind just because it, it helps put money in the pocket of its top players. And so they've supported it and they've, they're, they're doing everything they can to make it succeed, but the market will decide. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people think it's cool. I don't know. Um, because a huge trend in, in golf is just kind of people watching golf, like on YouTube there's there's these influencer types. They're not tour players. They're not mini tour players. They're they're good golfers. Some have played in college. Some are just scratch, whatever. Um, they go out and play matches with their buddies, and they put it on YouTube, and it gets hundreds of thousands of views. I don't know if you know, you know like Good Good is the name of one of these companies, and there, there's a bunch of them. And like, I don't watch it. I don't understand who's watching it, but it's like a whole thing. And so maybe this will kind of capture those fans who uh, they want to see. You know, there's going to be a lot of tech, right? It's the tech infused golf league. So, it, they'll they'll do some cool things, and and you'll have a ton of data that about, uh, you know, what's happening with the golf ball and 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 the golf swing, and I'm sure some guys will be in jeans, and it'll be it'll have a casual vibe. And so, 
maybe if, if they can capture that audience, I think it'll be a success, but um, I don't know. Personally, I'm not excited about it, but if everyone else is, that's great. I endorse it. I'll be, I'll be curious to see how that does. All right. Last one here. Um, you and another one of our former Sports Illustrated colleagues, Matt Janella, who um, was on the Golf Channel, obviously, for many years as well. Um, you guys formed a media company, the Fire Pit Collective. And I wonder for you, um, there's, you know, there are people who have had a lot of success going from, uh, you know, writer, if you want to sort of put it into those terms, uh, to, um, media CEOs, you know, Bill Simmons is probably the most well-known, but our old colleague, Peter King started, a an offshoot, uh, Monday morning quarterback at sports illustrated. So, um, you know, we've seen Dan Labertardis on this. We've seen this. Um, you guys are doing it a little on a smaller level, but obviously you, you, you must have seen a market where, um, there was an opportunity to create a content co- uh, company around what you and Matt do, which is golf. How much of a learning curve has it been for you to um, to to not just focus on writing anymore, but to focus on these other aspects to grow a company? Yeah, it's been it's been an incredible challenge. I, mean, I feel like I've got an MBA here the last two years. You know, words are my life, not numbers. But uh, I've, I've sort of had to to have a foot in both worlds. I'm, you know, it is interesting that the. Golf media is so different than any other sport because there is this multi-billion dollar industry out there that feeds everything. Like no football players go out and buy shoulder pads and helmets and cleats. That's just not a thing. But most golf fans spend a ton of money on golf clubs. And so the endemic advertisers have a lot of power. And, you know, they've kept golf magazine, golf digest more or less afloat, you know, even even as print is has dwindled and and those two outfits have focused more on the digital, but, um, and so there's these new media companies that, that are, are doing well and they're very much focused, you know, they're kind of millennial or zoomers even. And it, it's, it's not traditional storytelling. It's not even really traditional journalism. It's just, um, it's more experiential. So, I mean, and you know, Barstool is part of it. You know, Barstool is its own thing, but they've they've done they've they've done very well in golf, and it's almost like those guys are the stars, and the players have a supporting role. It's all about their experience at the tournament. Like, hey, I went to the Masters. This is what happened. And oh, here's an interview with John Rahm, but that's like an add-on. Um, that's not really, you know, me and Matt are from a different era. You know, we're sort of classically trained journalists, and we really still venerate that that long form storytelling. And so we felt like there was there was a there was an uh, an opportunity there to have kind of all the energy and all the the savvy of these new media companies but bring that that more traditional storytelling because the the traditional golf media platforms have really suffered you know as they've lost their independence because they are dependent uh, also on the PGA tour and the USGA to to stay afloat and so uh, right now, in the last couple of years, it's to be an independent voice with you know reporting on the news without fear or favor. It, it's been great, and we've you know I think we've really kind of established our niche. But you know, the business side is hard; it really is. Like, um, it's just it's is a constant chase to to get people to buy into it. And, uh, and honestly, I think we you know we overvalued the content. We felt like if, if we do really elegant, beautiful stuff, then advertisers and sponsors are going to be they're going to be beating down our door to be a part of it but it's been a little disenchanting to find out that uh it's still it, a lot of it's about quantity and not quality it's like just give us give us the metrics what what can you how much can you blast out and um 
how can you cut it up into little bits on TikTok and, and YouTube and other places? And we're, we we dabble on that, but it's not really our DNA. So wow, that's really, I mean, that's great. It's not great. It's just interesting that you um you guys are uh, working into the same market forces where you have seen a lot of people become like these content factories where it's like, it's not about journalism, right? It's about just essentially producing products that can get into search that someone will click on, right? And then ultimately an advertiser can be told you had, I'm making this up, right? 500,000 impressions on said story, which had said advertising. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, we don't, we, we don't want to play that game. We, we can't play that game. Our staff's not big enough. You know, I mean, like I, I, Golf Magazine at the Masters had like 10, 11, 12 people and they're they're just writing 30 stories a day and they're super SEO optimized and they're, they're short, quick hitters. And and so like they get an insane amount of traffic, which they could monetize, you know, they're owned by a billionaire. They, we don't, we don't have that luxury. So we're not going to compete on that level, but, you know, we feel like if, um, you know, our, our plan all along was, well, we'll write two or three stories that are really rich and well-reported and, and take the readers someplace they can't go. And they have, they have a depth and, and the people who, who are our fans, I mean, they love it. They're super into it, but you know, we, we have not probably gotten enough of the market share to really, um, you know, cause that's the first thing the advertisers say, you know, what are your numbers? What are, how many followers do you have? What is the, what are your visitors per month? And so, um, it, it's honestly been a little bit of a bummer to find out that quality is not that important and it's it's hard to monetize you, you're better off doing you know trafficking in, in quantity so uh we're, we're still trying to figure out the business i mean um it's we're about a year and a half into this and it, it's an it's an everyday challenge but it's been great to be able to write whatever you want to write and there's you know I came from Golf Magazine, and they had that a very particular point of view, and I was often butting heads with my superiors, and it just got to be not a productive working re- relationship. And so, to be unchained and, and just let it rip. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure I could have written the Phil Mickelson biography if I was still at Golf Magazine. You know, it would have just been. It wasn't what the ownership or the management wanted. Something that has that much controversy and that much edge, and um, so that was, that was part of why I left. And, um, I don't have any regrets, but to your question, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. It really is. And it, it, it can be a grind, you know, having to, having to worry about making payroll and, and, and all those things of, of any startup. So uh, it's, it, I'm grateful for the education, but it, uh, part of me kind of wishes I, you know, I'm nostalgic for the old days. You don't have to worry about it. Someone else worried about paying the bills. You just got a paycheck every two weeks and uh, you submitted your expenses and it all just kind of hummed along in the background and you didn't have to think about it. I mean, that's nice, but um, it's, you know, it's just things that things have changed, right? Since the glory years. So you, so basically um, it's firepitcollective.com. Is everything um, in front of a paywall or are there paywalled things that, um, are in addition to what I can get when I obviously click on the site and see like the main stories. Yeah, every, there is no paywall. And that's been another philosophical question for us. Like we need to grow our audience as big and fast as possible. And obviously a paywall is an impediment to that. At the same time, we need to monetize our content. So we, I mean, we've been doing this dance. We've been talking to Substack for a year. We just haven't pulled the trigger because it's like, we still have wanted to grow our audience as much as possible, but 
we do need to monetize the content. So we're, we're, we're probably heading in that direction. And the, which I think it just makes sense. I, I do feel like there's, there's been a, a cultural shift and there's con- consumption habits have started to change and people are more willing to pay for, for quality. It, um, it's tough in the golf space though, because pretty much everything at golf.com is free at golfdigest.com. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the challenge for you guys is that you have, you have other competitors who are, who have much larger pockets to, to be able to be free basically than you guys. That's, that's tricky. That's tricky. And you know, I know that there's, there's some sickos out there who will pay for what I write and, and say the Michael Bamberger and, you know, Matt Janelle's content and his travel stuff is a plus. And so, but how many, and uh, I mean, we'll find out when we turn the paywall on, but it's, it's, it's tough. And you can, you can, you can talk, we've talked to all of the, all the smart people at Substack and other places, and they, they can kind of give you a guess, but you don't know until you flip the switch. And um, now you can always, I mean, Substack's an elegant platform. You, you can still be on Substack, but make everything more or less free. Um, so it's not like quite the point of no return, but if you're going to commit to it and, and you're going to try and get people to buy in this community, it, it's, it's something you got to go all in on. So we, we've been doing this dance and uh, it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So, and that's, you can Monday morning quarterback that maybe we should have done it a year ago. I don't know, but uh, we just felt like it was important to show people who we are and to expand the readership as quickly as possible. Yeah, no, I, I buy that. Uh, well, wish you guys luck. The one thing I think that uh, um, would be great for you guys is, um, and again, I'm no expert on monetizing this, but the one thing I have seen from places where there does seem to be a really good revenue source is if you can, do experiential stuff where you bring your audience to you and either hold like, I'm going to use this loosely, like events or talks or whatever. That's uh, um, the one thing that I've sort of seen that uh, readers, uh, listeners, et cetera, they want to be part of something. And that's a way to make them part of something that said, again, gets back to everything else we talked about. It's a lot easier if you got a gigantic auditorium in downtown Manhattan where you don't have to pay for any of this stuff and you bring people in. Like you know, there's other yeah. elements to this. Like you have to you have to house people somewhere. But that is um I feel like for places like yours, especially in an event that you're covering, I feel like that's a it's a potential revenue stream because I think people would want be interested in hearing like what you and Michael Bamberger have to say, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what we talked about is Maybe we'll, we'll make, when we go to a subscription model, the content basically stays free. What people are paying for is access and community. So, we, you know, I can do a couple of times a month, do a Zoom call with subscribers and they can just ask me questions and we can... Perfect example. Yeah. And, you know, we want to, we want to, we've been, we just haven't had the bandwidth to launch an events business, but that You that's, can even have like tiers of that. I mean, when you get really big enough, there's places that obviously, you know, have like different tiers of the access that you can even get, you know, yeah. where like the top, top tier gets... Uh, I don't know. Alan Chipnock comes to your birthday party or something. I was like gonna that. say, I'll <laughs> I'll bake cookies and tuck people in the bed if that's what it takes. So yeah. Um, but, well, yeah, I wish yeah, you luck with that. I mean, I I admire you guys for for going for this because it's like it's an amazing thing to be able to control your own content and to be your boss. That's a great thing, and that's that in itself is amazing to me. I agree. Well, I appreciate that, Richard, and it's it's been fun. I mean, it's been a blast, and um, no regrets. But yeah, it's 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 been an interesting couple of years. I've <laughs> I've learned a heck of a lot. All right, Alan Shipnuck is a partner and an executive editor at the golf media company, The Fire Pit Collective. You can find all his writing, his podcast, video storytelling there. He's the author of the best-selling uh, book, Phil, The Rip Roaring 
an unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. Uh, follow him on all his various platforms, including um, Twitter, where uh, he usually says something interesting that both delights and pisses someone off. It's a, it's a rare gift that Al Chipnuck has, but <laughs> he absolutely has it. All right, now listen, you had a long couple of days, so I appreciate you doing this. Um, I hope you get some restful sleep there in California, and, and, <laughs> and we'll see you somewhere else on the tour. Thanks for uh, joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was good fun, and it's always great to reconnect, Rich. So I, I appreciate you. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. All right, as I said at the top, excited to bring on its returning guest here, Howard Beck, the longtime NBA writer. His work can now be found at uh, GQ.com. Maybe it could be found at GQ, the magazine as well. We'll have to ask him uh, that. But uh, Howard, of course, has written uh, NBA so for many, many years, New York Times, Bleach Report, Sports Illustrated, among other publications. And he is here today to talk about a recent piece, which I found really interesting. Why NBA MVP voter fatigue is mostly a myth. And I am pleased to be joined by Howard Beck. Howard, welcome. Richard, thank you. Good to be back. It's been a while, I think. I believe last time I was on the show, if I'm recalling correctly, it might have been like me and maybe Malika was on, I think, in, in her earlier days. And I was like, I just remember walking up and down the promenade along the East River. I don't remember. I don't remember why I was over there. I think maybe I just had like a follow-up appointment at like hospital for special surgery. So I don't remember. I just remember on a, a beautiful spring day walking along the East River while talking to you. And you had it was multiple of us on the pod that day uh talking wow. NBA stuff, I think. I feel like you've been on since then, but that is possible. That is <laughs> that that's very possible. Well, I'm glad at least you got a nice day. All right. So um I'm always sort of interested in voting when it comes to these awards and because there's a lot of debate around, you know, should writers vote? If they do vote, should it be transparent? This is not just an NBA thing. This is an across-the-sport thing. But something that seems very unique to the NBA is this idea that, um, you know, uh, a certain player cannot get an MVP award after a certain amount. They're just going to give it to another player because they don't want to give LeBron James seven MVPs in a row or Giannis seven MVPs in a row. So what did you find with this sort of notion that uh, – Voter fatigue is the reason that we don't have, let's say, an MVP uh, five, six, seven years in a row. So I've I've been intrigued by this in part because, yeah, I'm a voter. And um, there's a part of me that, yes, yeah, psychologically, do I get a little defensive when people are superimposing their beliefs on what the voters are doing? You know, the, they're not going to vote for this guy because of uh, fatigue. They're not going to vote for that guy because they don't like him. They're not going to. And it's like, 
I, 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 I'm sensitive to the idea that there's all this mind reading going on. And sometimes it's by fellow media members, by the way, um, and often by fans, pundits, others, whoever's following it. And there's these assumptions get made. And so, yeah, there's a little part of me that's like, well, how do you know what's in like my head, much less the heads of the other 99 people voting? I don't know what's in the heads of the other 99 people voting. And sometimes we like check in with each other, like, hey, what are you are you doing on this? Like, how, do, how are we going to fit in all these forwards? Like you, you, you check your notes a little bit. You try to. But. We did, we don't literally have a like hundred way conference call or Zoom meeting to hash this out. Everyone's sitting with their own ballots, with their own thought process and their own philosophy and their own definitions of what each of these awards actually is. So there's a part of me that's always like very uh, eager to push back on on tropes and beliefs and conspiracy theories by people um, trying to assess what the media voters are doing and why. So that's part of the the premise. The other part is that of course Nikola Jokic. Uh, was a leading candidate, remains a leading candidate, the votes are in, but we don't know the results, is a leading candidate for a third straight MVP. Giannis won back-to-back before Jokic stopped his streak. Um, Not long ago, Steph Curry won back-to-back. Not long before that, we had, or a little while before that, Steve Nash had won back-to-back. So we've had a lot of back-to-backs, but not three in a row. And one of the things that struck me over over time is, well, if voter fatigue is such a thing, why do we keep voting a guy back-to-back years like if, if voter fatigue were really a thing we're really just looking to constantly move on to the next guy or whatever then we wouldn't have so many even repeat awards and lebron who is cited as as a uh a, a quote-unquote victim of, of voter fatigue because he didn't win in 2000 uh i think it was 11 yeah 10 11 season he had one back-to-back. Derrick Rose wins, but then LeBron wins the next two in a row. So he won four out of five. If voter fatigue were so strong an influence, would LeBron have won four out of five? That's a lot. In fact, that's the most in decades in a, in a five-year span. What this really goes back to, Richard, is, is it's always about Michael, ultimately. Everything goes back to Michael Jordan. In 1997, Michael lost to Carl Malone. And at the time, there were a number of stories written People always cite the one by Jackie McMullen in NSI, which I, I didn't even read until after I'd filed my story for GQ about this. Um, and I, but I did, I did finally look at it the other day because somebody texted it to me and said, "How come you didn't mention this?" Uh, I, I didn't read it. I, I know people cite it sometimes, but Jackie wrote uh, something from through Carmelo's Malone's vantage point that year about him kind of saying, well, I know I'm not going to get it. Michael's going to get it. And then she kind of made the case for why Carl Malone was a viable candidate. It wasn't. People have really. Badly exaggerated what that story was, by the way. Um, and I found a bunch of other columns. I, I went to nexus.com and I found columns from Charlotte and Orlando and a bunch of other places, NBA writers in various cities doing what, what writers do at that time, which was announce their awards or say what they're thinking in their Sunday NBA columns. And a lot of them made the case for why Malone should get it. And some of them did note something along the lines of, you know, Cromwell's had this amazing career. He's coming closer to the end. It would be a shame if he never was awarded this. He's one of the the dominant elite players of his era. Michael was not going for a third straight that year. Michael already had four and was the defending MVP, but he wasn't on any kind of streak. Um, several years before that, Charles Barkley had won one in 93 that some people thought should have gone to Michael Jordan. And so what happens is there's this idea based on the 90s and based on Michael Jordan not winning all of them, despite being what most people believe is the great, greatest player of all time. I think people look at that and they say, well, Carl Malone got a lifetime achievement award because people didn't want to keep giving it to Michael or Charles Barkley got it because they didn't want to keep giving it to Michael. And if Michael is as great as we all believe he is, and he is, 
why didn't he win it every year? And then a similar thing came about with LeBron for a while, where it was like, LeBron's the best player in the league. Everybody knows it, but we keep giving MVP to these other people. Well, context, folks, context. Every season is its own thing. LeBron James can be the best player in the league for, say, 15 straight years. Whatever we want to define him as being the undisputed number one player in the NBA, there's some streak of years, a lot of years. He's won four MVPs out of that, say, 12 to 15. It's not because of boredom that he didn't get it the other years. It's because sometimes LeBron had a down year. Sometimes his team had a down year. Sometimes it was pretty clear that he was taking a couple of months to just ease off the pedal for a while, take, you know, take, you know, a lot of plays off defensively or whatever else. Uh, there was the year he he left Cleveland to go to Miami to just go rehab for a couple of weeks, if you recall. Every year has other factors that come into play. Other teams and and stars are rising and falling. And so it's just because LeBron's the best player for a decade or more doesn't mean he he should win MVP every year because it's not the best player in the NBA award or the most outstanding player award. It's MVP and the V for valuable. We, the voters over the course of time, over decades and decades, have usually assessed that to be some combination of your own excellence and your team's success. And generally speaking, that has meant success at a very high rate for the team. And so if, if you're on a team that, we saw win 60 games and you drop to 50 the next season. Yeah, that usually hurts the MVP candidacy. So there's a lot of factors that come into play. And I don't think it's about fatigue. Even if you want to say that the Malone Jordan thing was that the trope stands because of one vote or one result from 30 years ago <laughs> that is still haunting us today because now if everybody looks at everything through that lens. And if Jokic doesn't win it this year, I say it's not because of fatigue. It's because... Embiid or Giannis uh, made a great case and Jokic's case was probably hurt by the Nuggets kind of petering out over the last two months. Where do you, uh, you know, I, when you worked at the New York Times, obviously you did not vote based on yes. their own rules. Where, where do you stand just on the idea of NBA writers voting on these things and, you know, with the with sort of just letting the the, the listeners know that like many times, Howard, you know this, like there are contractual things that exist that if a player uh, receives a certain award or maybe finishes in the top five of a certain award, you know, they get something financially. So in this case, like writers have a real impact when it comes to contractual things. How do you see all that? Yeah, you know, and so uh, I've been covering the league for this is 26 seasons. I've been a voter for pretty much every year, except for the nine years I was with the Times, because the Times believes that ethically we should not be uh, reporters shouldn't be making the news. The Washington Post has a similar ban uh, on voting by its reporters. I think USA Today and I think the AP still has that rule, too, don't they? Um, so when you when you're not working for one of those organizations and you do have the option, it's certainly a um it's it's a difficult thing. Um, it's an honor and a responsibility to have the vote, to be among that voting body and to do that exercise, knowing that you are influencing not just the news because award winners are newsworthy for winning it. There are some financial things attached. I'll get to that part in a second. Um, I, 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 I do struggle with it, Richard. And, and several of my colleagues um, have opted out in recent years for a variety of reasons. And it is, I, I would say it's a fair critique by, you know, whether it's the New York Times making the case, whether it's any other journalist making the case that we shouldn't be doing it. It's a, it's a fair case. The, the problem is that for the leagues, not just the NBA, but the other leagues is, is what's the alternative. 
I've had these conversations with the league, with the NBA many times over the years, and I don't want to speak for them, but I'll just give you my own version of this, which is that I think the league understands that if you, the players don't take this stuff seriously. We see it every year now with the all-star voting. The players do not take this seriously. The coaches can't be trusted. <laughs> um, and there's only 30 of them. And that's not a, a big enough of a voting pool. Team team GMs can't be trusted either. Like who else is going to, to, to vote? And as flawed as we, the media may be, and we certainly are. And if we, even if you want to say that there is no objective body, everyone has their biases, whatever I could argue that with, with people, but I won't today. We are the we are the the most relatively objective compared to the players, the coaches, or anybody else who actually has a stake in this. And so you can quibble with our thought process, you can quibble with our results, you can quibble with whatever you want to. I don't know that there's a better group to do it. And the league, if they could find a better group to do it, would have moved on from us long ago. <laughs> and so we keep doing it. Do you think you know? I always appreciate in any sport. When a voter uh, writes a column or does some kind of uh, podcast or video about why they made their vote, do you, would you do you think that should be mandatory as opposed to voluntary at this point? Where um, one, the votes are made public, and two, you you offer the 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 public, the sporting public, just your thoughts as to why you made this vote. Um, I'm of a, a couple of different views on this one. Um, you know, several years ago, uh, the NBA, in concert with the Pro Basketball Writers Association, where I'm uh, currently president and a, and a longtime board member, we came to an agreement on making our ballots transparent. Um, that had never been the case prior to, I think, 2000, I think it was 14 that we finally did this. And I believed, and many others uh, in, in, in our ranks believed, that accountability First of all, we're journalists. We should not be advocating for secrecy. We should be advocating for openness. That's what we do as journalists. Um, and accountability is also important in, in our business. So having our, our ballots be available to the public at some point after the awards go out, I thought was important. A lot of us felt was important. And it has been the norm now for uh, you know almost a decade. Um, it's come with some consequences. And I, know, and I have friends who have opted out of the voting in part because they don't like the idea of our votes being public because it can create backlash and resentments and players then coming to you potentially. And I've heard stories like this and saying, I can't believe you didn't vote for me. And, you know, you coming to me every day and asking me for, you know, my time or you wanted to sit down or what. Those are the consequences. Those are those are real things. And again, I don't blame anybody for being for or against the transparency. And I don't blame anybody for wanting to to opt out if, if that's become uncomfortable. Um, I see it along the same lines as everything else that we do. A lot of stuff we do is uncomfortable. We have to write, we write, we praise players and sometimes we have to write critically about players. And sometimes we have to write news about situations that teams and players don't want us to. And every day we go back to practice or the locker room or whatever, and we deal with the consequences if there are any. And if somebody wants to push back or critique my work, then, then they can. So I feel the same thing about the ballots. I don't, I've never been one to write about my ballot not because I'm trying to hide anything. It, it's it's it'll be out there in the open. I just if we all do it, the suspense goes away. <laughs> There's a hundred ballots. If every if all 100 people published ahead of time, I'm not trying to you know, I don't try to help out the NBA or anything on on this note. But I, I like the suspense of it. I like the idea that like oh tomorrow's the day where we're gonna hear who the all NBA teams are. Yeah, my counter my only counter to that would be. Um... To, just to write something at any time. Like, I don't, th I'm not saying like, like I, 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 one, I think the columns are just good content too. And I think they're actually well read. Sure. But, um, 
But they certainly can come after the fact. Like, I, I agree with you that there's a cool suspense thing, but, um, yeah, I don't know if it should be voluntary. I guess I would say, like, I just, I appreciate the people who decide to write that sure. piece. Sure. I, listen, just, like, I read it, those it, too. And, and by the way, I'm not, trust me, I'm not like you. I'm not so NBA nerddom where I even care much about this. But I just think as a piece of content, it's like very interesting to me to get into the person's mind to see how they ended up voting. Yeah, no, for for sure. Um, it, it just never was a thing for me. I just I never part of this is just the way I'm wired. Like it feels it feels too self-indulgent. And I just I, I, I don't even even like the piece I wrote for GQ last week. I think I had first person in the lead like you. You could count on one hand the number of times I've had used the first person in a lead of anything I've written in the last 10 years. I'm, I don't like writing about myself, my thought process, my, my my views. Even if I do opinion, I'll usually leave myself out of it and just make it more analytical. So maybe this is just my own, you know, neuroses. Um but like I was on Zach Lowe's pod this week and, and you know, it was on the day that we had finally turned in the ballots. In fact, my ballots were not in at the time that I recorded with Zach, although I finished it shortly after. And he wanted to go through MVP and we talked a little bit about all NBA. And so I touched on the things and I think we touched on coach of the year. And I think that was it. So I didn't mind talking about it when asked by a friend on his podcast, um, but I don't do the full on. Here's my entire ballot. How many of these do you vote on? Do you don't vote? You don't vote on every award. I do. Or do you? Yeah. And, and, oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. And, and there's so the way they do this is the NBA award or, or gives ballots to there's a hundred ballots, a hundred ballot sets, I should say. So a hundred MVP, a hundred All NBA, a hundred Defensive Player of the Year, all of it. The way it's broken up, if you're a national writer, which is the the position that I've had for the last ten years, you usually get the whole set. If you were working in a market, like when I was covering the Lakers and there were a bunch of beat writers, they would split it up. So like somebody gets these two ballots, somebody gets those two, whatever. So you still have, you have uh, 30 complete ballots that came from each of the 30 uh, team beats. Um, and it's not just writers, of course. So that, that could also be broadcasters. It's not local broadcasters though, because I, I do want to note this. Local broadcasters, the team broadcasters are on team payrolls and have a conflict of interest. Um, they used to be part of the voting process. They were taken out of it once we went to transparency um, or a couple of years after we went to transparency. So, um, But it is a mix of, of local and national. It is a mix of print and broadcast. It is a mix even of, of domestic and international. There, uh, last year, there were 10 international writers who uh, writers or broadcasters who voted. Um, so it's, it's, it's across... You know, there's a good cross section. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Last one for me. Um, the We're taping this on the week of the play-in game. And generally speaking, my focus when it comes to the playing game has been the viewership aspect of it. Like, what's it meant for the NBA? Has it been successful? And I would say it absolutely has. A couple of years ago when uh, it was Lakers-Warriors, that game drew a little more than 5 million viewers. That's an incredible number for, you know, what I would call, call like an early postseason game or end-of-the-year game. Uh, numbers dropped, obviously, last year from that game because you're never going to get the Warriors-Lakers kind of viewership number again. 
But in general, you know, we're talking, Howard, you know, 2 million viewers, 2.5 million viewers, maybe a little under 2 million, depending on who the teams are. I would say this has been very successful for the NBA just in terms of um, creating new interest and creating some new inventory for its television partners. From a basketball end, how do you how do you view this? Um, few thoughts. I, I want to, I'm going to put a pin in it and come back to it real quick. I know you want to wrap up. Um, I, there's one other thing I should say about, because you asked and I didn't really answer about the, the voting. Um, and it's the financial element. And I do want to hit this real quick. Yeah, please. For the most part, for years, the only financial element was, okay, there might be a bonus in somebody's contract. Um, and then these would be more quote unquote minor compared to what players make in recent years, due to some changes to the CBA, there are now, uh, it's a, a value of 30 to $40 million worth of, of triggers in a contract. If you were eligible for this, these super maxes that are based in part on like the all NBA awards. And I want to flag that real quick, just to note that because I've been on a bit of a, a, a mini crusade here and I will continue to press the league and the players association on this. We, the voting media did not choose to have the ability to dictate or determine a 30 to $40 million value over the life of a contract based on the awards. Um, the league and the Players Association wanted to come up with a way to award bigger contracts to young stars with their teams to keep them, to give them more incentive to stay put. This was in response to the Kevin Durant leaving Oklahoma and a bunch of other situations. The league has always had the, uh, the idea that, you know, not only should we, uh, from the players' side, great players should have the ability to make more from the, the league and team side. It's we should have the ability to offer more that induces a player to stay as opposed to all the movement we've seen. So they came up with these supermax structures that were based on awards. We were not consulted on this, the media, we were not asked about it. And ever since I have been publicly and privately uh, calling them out for this saying, take us out of this, like find another way. You got to appoint a blue ribbon panel to decide who's uh, eligible for the supermax. Uh, you need to use some statistical formula or some baselines across a bunch of statistical categories. Fine. Come up with something else. Leave us out of it. Because to the point that you were asking about earlier, sure. It, like I, I think in an ideal world, maybe the media doesn't vote on these awards, but as long as we do have the responsibility and as long as this is the system, Let's make it as, uh, as 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 palatable as possible, and not have us be responsible for literally tens of millions of dollars that a player could be eligible for. Uh, the league should fix this. They have a new CBA that's recently been completed. I don't suspect that they're going to have changed this in there because they had much bigger, weightier issues to deal with. Um, but I'm going to continue to uh, diplomatically, politely suggest to leadership of both the league and the Players Association that they find a different way to determine this stuff that leaves us, the media, out of it because we should not be determining that stuff. Okay, that all aside. The play in, the play has been a, a, a smash success. Absolutely. Um, forget the ratings for a moment. And I know that's that's your deal. Uh, I don't even understand ratings still, Richard. Someday I, you're going to have to explain them to me. I'll explain it. To you. <laughs> um, ratings aside, forget that to, to the side. The mere fact that the existence of the play in has created more incentive for teams to keep competing into late March and early April is that alone is, is a win for the NBA, because as you know, you know, this has been a league where tanking has long been an issue and teams just, even if they weren't quote unquote tanking, once you've lost any ability to, to, to gain anything, if you can't make it to the eighth seed and it's mid March, of course, you're going to start playing the young guys. Of course, you're going to start resting your banged up 
veterans and stars, but it's not good for the product. It makes those games less compelling. Fan bases start checking out. And what we have instead now is fans of teams that are at 12th, but still have a shot at 10th to get to the play in are now tuned in. And those teams are still playing their veterans and trying. So that is, is a success in itself. The playing games themselves and the ratings and the interest will probably vary year to year, depending on who's in it, right? You and I are recording hours before Lakers wolves, Lakers wolves. I'm sure will do bonanza, uh, uh, you know, yeah. viewership. Rudy, thank you, Rudy Gobert, for adding another storyline to this. Sure. Absolutely. But Le- Le- LeBron and the Lakers on their own because they're LeBron and the Lakers. I don't know, like, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, Hawks and Heat do much. Will Bulls, Raptors, Thunder, Pelicans, probably not quite the same level of intrigue. Um, and that's, the, you know, potentially the downside is that teams that are 7, 8, 9, 10, usually don't have a LeBron James and Anthony Davis on them. Um, but there's still plenty of stars. Look, you know, Trey Young is going to be playing against Jimmy Butler. And, you know, um, then there will be other matchups over the next two days. <laughs> but um, but if nothing else, stars or no stars, and in some cases, stars that just aren't maybe on the radar of the of the, the average fan, um, it is one and done. Or in the case of you're the seven eights, you're you're it's two and done potentially. The nine and ten, it's it's uh you know it's win or go home. Um, but the stakes are higher. The suspense is built in. And in the NBA, where the actual playoff series are all best of seven and they take weeks, <laughs> um, and and sometimes especially those one eight and two seven matchups always feel like they're they're just going through the motions because you know what the outcome is before they even start most years. Having something with this kind of of uh, of of just you know the, the stakes built into it, um, the winner go home aspect of it, and especially if it's a team like the Lakers where LeBron James and Anthony Davis lose this game tonight, okay, they get one more, but suddenly your entire season's coming down to one game. Um, that's fun, right? Why do people love March Madness? They they love it because uh, every game has ultimate stakes attached to it. And we don't have that in the NBA except for with the play-in. Yeah, and the brackets as well, of course. Howard Beck is a writer for GQ. Check out his latest piece on, uh, well, I would say actually for Howard Beck, check, probably check out his uh, Twitter feed, which will probably have his uh, his uh, latest piece, uh, Why NBA MVP Voter Fatigue is Mostly a Myth. Uh, Howard, I'm glad to see you're still doing the podcast, sir. Zach Lowe, by the way, uh, that has slightly more uh, listeners than this. So good, <laughs> good scouting by you to go on that. And uh, we'll continue to read your stuff at GQ you have, which is very exciting to me. You're going to be reporting with them through the entire NBA Finals, right? You're going the distance with that. Yeah, I'll be uh, writing for GQ, GQ.com for the next few months through the Finals. Um, we'll see uh, where where uh, where things go beyond that. Um, all of my stuff, by the way, in addition to my Twitter feed, which is at Howard Beck, um, you can actually see everything I've written for the last like 20 years. Uh, New York Times, Bleacher Report, SI, uh, and GQ at my Authory page, which is basically author with a Y on the end. So Authory.com backslash Howard Beck. And uh, you can even subscribe and get updates every time I write. So uh, nice. go check it out. You're smart. Yeah, always good to branch out given the current state of Twitter. <laughs> the um, yes. Listen, man, thank you for coming on. I, I will. Uh, I'll probably check in with you before the uh, before the finals are uh, are done and um, continue to you know continue with the good fight that you got going on <laughs> with. Uh, with NBA, uh, <laughs> with NBA voting, I, I I respect. I know how passionate you are about this, and uh, 
and your thoughts on uh, transparency and stuff. So I, uh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, Howard Beck, everybody, follow his uh, work. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Alan Shipnook and Howard Beck for their time and insights. The two really skilled practitioners. I enjoy those conversations. If you like these podcasts, leave uh, us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how the podcasts continue and would be most appreciative. Head back to the archives. Um, I'll give you the last couple podcasts we've done. ESPN's Ryan Rucco and the athletic writer Chantel Jennings and Sabrina Merchant. We did an hour and 11 minutes on the growth of women's basketball. Prior to that, I had Alex Sherman on the WWE Endeavor merger. He was the first person to break that. WWE announcer Michael Cole was on this podcast. ESPN broadcaster Holly Rowe had ESPN investigative reporters Nicole Noren and TJ Quinn. Uh, LA Dodgers play-by-play broadcaster and Fox Sports broadcaster Joe Davis and Rich Early, The Athletic, and Kevin Harlan on March 22nd, along with best-selling author Jeff Perlman. Uh, again, should be some things in the archives that uh, you'll enjoy and appreciate, and check them out. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at uh, Cadence 13 and Odyssey for their support. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, Part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.